Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Princeton University Press Ideas Podcast, a joint production of Princeton University Press and the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clovis, and today I'm speaking with David Peña Guzman, author of the book When Animals Dream, The Hidden World of Animal Consciousness. David, welcome to the New Books Network. Thank you for having me. I'm very happy to be here. And we're happy to have you on our show. I was wondering if you could start us off by telling our listeners something about yourself. Well, I can begin by saying that I just wrote this book, which is my first single authored publication, which is the culmination of a few years of work on animal cognition, animal embodiment, animal emotion that began for me when I was a graduate student. Um, At the time, I was getting my PhD in philosophy in Atlanta, Georgia at Emory University. And I began to get really interested in the lives of non-human animals. And that's what prompted me to dive into what is now known as the philosophy of animal cognition. So uh, I'm a philosopher who has an interest in biology, the environment, nature, and who just wrote a book kind of combining all these categories um, into an account of what it is that we can know about the consciousness of other animals. But but my background intellectually, so here I'm now talking about my pedigree, um, is in European philosophy. I was trained as, um, as a historian of ideas, really. Uh, and now what I do is try to take what I learned in philosophy and in the history of ideas and apply it to reconceptualizing how we think about the other animals with whom we share the world. That's one of the things about the book that I found so fascinating when I read it, which is that it is a book that does look deeply into the the philosophical implications of animal consciousness, but you also connected to uh, science. You you talk a lot about uh, the ethics of research. What led you to undertake the approach that you did? Why was it that you decided to uh, to undertake such a, uh, frankly, to me, seems like a daunting project, especially for a first book, which, you know, in in that you were not just encompassing philosophy, but uh, science and, and a little bit of intellectual history as well. Yeah, well, I came to this book topic by accident, largely. I was conducting research about something unrelated, or at least tangentially related, which was the epistemological limitations of using animals as models in um, scientific research. So to what extent can we extrapolate from what we learn about animals in a laboratory to humans because of species boundaries? And in the context of doing that research, I came upon a couple of references to animal sleep and at one point, an allusion that was not very serious, it was just a, a, a passing remark by a couple of authors about the possibility that animals might dream. And I didn't think much of that remark uh, at the time. I sort of kept going with my research. I continued to work on the, the topic that I was interested in. But for some reason, that image of, of an animal sleeping in a laboratory potentially dreaming while they were taking a little nap really stuck with me. And I found myself coming back to that image uh, weeks later and a couple of months later. And I began to consider that there might be something there for me to explore. 
and at the time, I didn't know if it was a dead end, if it would lead anywhere. Um, but I began to dive into the literature, the scientific literature on animal sleep. And that's when I realized that there was something here that I could articulate as a philosopher using scientific research um, as evidence for a philosophical point about the nature of animal minds. And so that explains that origin story, explains this odd combination that you get in the book, which is a combination of sometimes um, semi-advanced philosophical concepts. You know, I talk about things that seem somewhat airy or um, abstract, like consciousness, subjectivity, selfhood, intentionality, affect, emotion. And I combine it with really practical, empirical, on-the-ground um, research findings that come out of, of um, field and laboratory experiments. And so it is at once an empirically-minded book, but also a philosophically-motivated one. And so those two arms just coexist, um, hopefully somewhat harmoniously, in the book. Well, not just, I, I would say, harmoniously, but seamlessly. I mean, I was really impressed by how you did the transition, especially when you start with the empirical, because, I, I mean, to me, that, that for me was the, the, the uh, perhaps one of the most shocking things when I was reading your book was the fact that there was this question as to whether or not animals dream. Because, I mean, those of us who have pets have probably noticed, you know, our dogs, our cats, or other pets, uh, you know, they, 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 they appear to be dreaming. So it, it's, and, and I, I, you know, you talk to pet owners and sometimes they, they will make a comment about this. It seems a given. And yet, as you explain your first chapter, that was not, something that was universally accepted and, and how, if anything, it was at one point believed that animals dreamed. And then there was this whole period of time for decades where people just simply assumed that they didn't. What, what, what was happening there? And, and how did that reflect some of the trends that were taking place in terms of how we thought about uh, consciousness in animals in, in the 19th and 20th centuries? Yeah, so this is what I call the 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 long silent century, uh, which is a period spanning roughly from the end of the 1800s, roughly 1890 or so, to the late 20th century, let's say 19, uh, se 1970s or so, which is this period of time during which, at least in Europe and North America, because of changes internal to the science of psychology, a lot of experts who otherwise would have been interested in the minds of animals suddenly turned completely away from any consideration of non-human mental states. And the idea was that because we don't have direct access to the first-person perspective, in the case of other animals, I cannot literally put myself in the shoes of a dog or a cat or a dolphin. I mean, not that dolphins would wear shoes, you know, they're thin um, Close, whatever they may be, um, because I cannot do that. Scientifically speaking, one cannot say anything about them. So we just leave the subject completely alone. That's why I call it the silent century, because during this period, scientists just decided to no longer consider uh, the emotions, the feelings, the thoughts, the beliefs of other creatures. Now, and, and, and yet, what makes that so interesting is the fact that 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 was preceded by about two or three decades. And as you described, this is you know the 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 Victorian era where people are 
getting to explore uh, Darwinian concepts of evolution and beginning to ask questions from that. And as you explained, there's a there, there's some pretty rich literature from that period, which you know, takes as its premise or explores the question of whether or not you know animals have consciousness and whether or not they dream. And that that was probably was fascinating for me. It's not as though it was a question that was never considered until the 1970s. It's, it's that where it was considered dropped. And as you later on point out in that, in, in that chapter, that we've kind of gone first full circle and gone back to embracing what the Victorians at one point almost took for granted. Yeah, and I think it's a really great case study into the dynamics of scientific history and the ways in which different questions in science come in and out of vogue at different points in time. And that problematizes that somewhat simplistic notion that we have of science as a linear progress uh, or as a, as a line where we just increasingly gain knowledge and discard things that are meaningless and never move backwards. Uh, when in fact, we are constantly rediscovering old questions, old problematics, old thematics, and putting a modern spin on them in light of new research. So I really like that this uh, historical narrative, this genealogy that I lay out in chapter one of the book draws attention to that. But it's also important to note that interest in the dreams of animals, which, as you point out, um, was a major source of scientific controversy in the 19th century, is even older than that. We already find accounts of animals dreaming in the um, classical period of, um, of um, ancient Greek culture. Aristotle talks about this in his book on the history of animals. So does the Roman philosopher Lucretius in his book on the nature of things, uh, which I cite in, in the book. And you find comments here and there throughout the medieval period, the Renaissance period, and if you push it forward, even the early modern period, the 16th and 17th centuries. And it is in the 19th century, again, during this Victorian period, that these discussions take on what we now recognize as a quintessentially modern scientific air, because they start getting filtered largely through Darwin's theory of evolution. And Darwin himself talks about the dreams of animals, in uh, not in On the Origin of Species, which of course was the book that caused a major cultural upheaval, um, but on the book that followed that, which is On the Descent of Man, which is a work of comparative psychology, where he compares human and non-human cognition along different axes, one of them being animal dreaming. Um, and so there is this history, but it, it goes way farther back than just the 19th century. So you take us from the the, the history of, of of thinking about animals dreaming to talking about the the modern day science. Mm -hmm. And and I, I have to say this was one of my favorite parts of the book was being introduced to Heidi the octopus and and you know what that episode says about it and and how we can even find that that something as an uh, as an uh like an octopus who as you mentioned you know aristotle thought was a dumb animal uh as animals go nonetheless is, is was one that where we can you know we have this speculation uh you know uh you know, evidence that, that, that points to the fact that, that, you know, octopi dream and, and, and that, you know, and octopi are hardly alone in that respect. Yeah. And I, it seems like Heidi is outshining me in media coverage for this book. I think she's the real star here. Um, no, 
I, I think you should. I think you should credit that to how you presented the book because it, it's a very readable <laughs> passage way you do so. Um, well, and it is such a compelling visual scene. Um, emphasis here on visual because, of course, octopuses. Um, express themselves through their chromatophoric system by making these vivid, colorful, flamboyant displays. And uh, for people who are not familiar with Heidi, Heidi is an octopus who went somewhat viral a couple of years ago when she was recorded sleeping and making one of these visual displays um, during what essentially amounts to REM sleep for octopuses. And I interpret this display, which um, goes through various faces and different colors and different uh, patterns um, of, of, the, of the mantle, as a, as a dream that we can see on her skin. And what's fascinating about this is not only that here we have a dream that occurs through a... Through a medium for which we have no analog in human experience. Obviously, we are not um, endowed with that chromatophoric system. So it it highlights the, the radical diversity of nature. But because I interpret this as a, as a non-human dream, it raises a lot of questions about just how far back in evolution, in uh, evolutionary time, dreaming emerged. Because humans and octopuses are very far apart on what we could call the tree of life. Um, you know, we we need to remember that octopuses are, are mollusks. Um, they are almost as different from us as, as an organism can be. Um, they don't have bones. Uh, they don't have legs and arms. And they don't even have the same kind of nervous system that we have. And so... This difference that separates us, this distance that that um, separates us from octopuses, indicates that dreaming may have evolved quite a long time ago, and therefore may encompass more modern animals than we may realize. So that's what I find really fascinating about the particular case of Heidi. As you explained, though, I mean, it's, it's not just about Heidi that we have other examples of this. And, and, and it really is just in, uh, fascinating to see all of the, the you know, various you know, data points that we have through, through modern research. Are, are, and, and more importantly, and this connects back to what you were saying earlier, that scientists are beginning to look at that question specifically, you know, do animals dream? How do they go about trying to establish that when they don't have those obvious visual cues of uh, an octopus changing color? Yeah, so there's a lot of scientists out there who are interested in the question of animal sleep. How do animals sleep? What happens uh, to their minds and to their bodies, um, or more specifically to their brains, when they go through various stages of sleep? Most of the scientists who are working in animal sleep are not necessarily interested in the question of dreaming. And that's something that I point out in the book because I noticed a pattern as I was moving through the scientific literature on animal sleeping, whereby a lot of scientists would conduct really fascinating, very interesting studies about animal sleeping, but would consciously and explicitly take a step back from making any kind of claim about whether or not the animals in their studies were actually having a dream experience or a dream sequence. So there seemed to be almost this 
agnosticism in um, in the field, whereby people would say, well, we just don't want to take any stance. We are agnostic about the dreaming question. We're just interested in, let's say, the uh, behavioral manifestations or the neural events that are happening at various stages in sleep. And so one of the things that I do in the book is I look at that same research that these scientists are producing and I interpret it in a different way. And I say, no, if you take these findings seriously, it actually might mean that the animals are actively dreaming, that they are generating internally a world analog in the middle of their sleep cycle, which is fascinating. Because if you think about what a dream is, by definition, it is an imagined reality, a virtual scenario that we run when our bodies are resting and we are disconnected from the world. And we do so just through this powerful mental act of creation. And so if we accept that animals stream, then it raises a lot of questions about the power of their minds, uh, their cognitive capacities, the way in which they experience the world, and the kind of subjects that they are. And so in the book, I look at two kinds of scientific research that bear on this question. So this goes to, to what you just asked about. How do scientists go about studying this? And the first one is neuroscientific research. So research into what parts of the brains of different animals are activated during sleep and at, at different stages of their sleep cycle to see if there are differences um, in patterns of neural activation. The second kind of research that I look at is behavioral research, which is systematic observation and description of what the bodies of animals do during sleep. Do they kick their legs? Do they make vocalizations? Do they seem like they're getting into a fight with imaginary enemies? What exactly is the behavioral program or the behavioral enactment uh, that is going on in, in sleep? And so if you take those two bodies of research and put them together, you start weaving a much more, a much more complex but unified picture, according to which these animals are having dream experiences that are largely influenced by um, the things that they've experienced in the past, which raises questions about, for example, memory. They, they might be replaying a scene from their past, or they might be playing a scene that is not connected to the past and that raises questions about their capacity to imagine new things. Either way, a lot of cognitive questions ride on the back of recognizing that the existing evidence, again, behavioral and neuroscientific, point in the direction of animal dreaming. I was wondering if we could take those two categories and, and, and look at them separately as you do in the book. And we could start by, by looking at the, the link between animal dreams and, and consciousness. How, can, how do you use dreams to make the case for the existence of consciousness in animals? And, and, and what sort of, of, of consciousness model are you uh, embracing in order to do this? Yes, yeah, so I make the connection in two ways. The first one is relatively simple and largely definitional. By definition, dreams are conscious experiences. 
even if we don't remember them when we wake up. So this is not um, a question about dream remembrance as much as it is about the going through a particular dream sequence um, as it's occurring. Again, by definition, a dream is the presentation of some kind of sensory reality to the dreamer that the dreamer mistakenly takes to be the real world, right? We get fooled by our dreams. We are presented with this sensory, this this phenomenal world. And we experience certain things in the course of that experience. Eventually, it comes to an end and we wake up. Sometimes we remember, sometimes we don't. But the point is that the experience itself, because it involves the presentation to the subject of a phenomenal reality, and by that I mean a spatial temporally or a spatial temporally organized world, right? Like with space, with time, with um, clear relations between objects in the dream world. By definition, the the act of being there in such a phenomenal reality is a conscious experience. Um, and so there is no such thing on my account as an unconscious dream. That would be a category mistake. Um, and so that means that we should think about consciousness as something that can occur when we're awake. So for example, right now that I'm talking to you, I am obviously a, I'm obviously in a conscious state. I am alert, I am vigilant, I am listening to what you say. But then there is also this other form of consciousness that occurs when we fall asleep. And that's what I call dream consciousness. So it is a modality of consciousness. So that's the first way in which I draw the connection between dreaming and consciousness. The second way is by looking at things that in the waking state, we typically take to be indicators of conscious awareness, things like emotion, for example, or affect. And then I raise the question of whether these indicators are also there in dreams. And so just to use the example of emotion and affect, I devote an entire section of the book to talking about how dreams are also windows into the emotional lives of animals. Because in the same way in which dreams are necessarily conscious, according to the logical point that I made two minutes ago, so too dreams are inherently emotional. They involve the activation of affects, of sentiments, of feelings. And if we take that claim seriously, then it means that animals have an emotional life that, Im that manifests itself, not just in the waking state, but also in the dream state. Um, and so emotional consciousness is also uh, a significant part of the story that I tried to elaborate and uh, tell in this book. That's the part of the story that I, I think, you know, it, it, again, I, I'm thinking superficially for people who who live with animals who would be, you know, find very easy to accept that they, we, you know, sometimes people criticize it as uh, anthropomorphizing that, that we are projecting it. But most people who with pets would say that they're not, that in fact, their animals do have that emotions. You then go on, though, and, and, and argue for that imagination that animals have imagination. And that was the part I found especially fascinating because, you know, that would be something that we would think of as being a, a, a much higher cognitive function. That would be something that would distinguish us from lower form animals. And yet you, you make this case for arguing that, that animals do indeed have imagination and that this is something that we've seen uh, examples of in, in, in various uh, 
uh, circumstances. Yes, imagination is one of those uh, sophisticated qualities or capacities that historically, not only scientists, but also philosophers have pointed to as a way of articulating what it is that sets humans apart from the rest of the natural world. Um, and there are a number of concepts that have been used historically to, to perform that separating function. Uh, typically, you find language. You know what we have that other animals don't is the capacity uh, to speak in sentences. Rationality has also been used. Uh, capacity for moral cognition. Humans are the only moral animal. That's a, a common claim in the history of ethical theory, at least Western ethical theory. And so there are these concepts that play this policing function of trying to draw a line uh, between the human and the non-human world. And imagination is one such concept. So there, is, there, there are plenty of philosophers um, who have made the argument that animals, they can attend to what is present in their world. They can see the tree. They can see the squirrel that's running away from them, whatever the case might be. But they can never experience what is absent. So they are limited to their immediate surroundings, um, mentally. Mentally speaking, they're limited to what is in their immediate environment. To the point where sometimes they, we might say, well, they don't even have object permanence. The, the, and that, that, of course, is a nice way of saying that we degrade them to the status of, of being infants, if not even lower. Yeah, so the, the notion of object permanence is implied here uh, because it means that animals are only experiencing what is here and now from one moment to the next without any sense of, of mental continuity across uh, mental states or, or even mental moments. And the case of imagination is particularly um, compelling for me because imagination is something that, that we typically valorize as the achievement of the human soul, right? When you think about imagination, you start thinking about... Um, some of the greatest achievements of human culture, uh, you think about music, you think about poetry, you think about philosophy, you think about science, which is itself an exercise in imaginative thinking. But there are ways in which other animals express their imaginative capacities. So surely animals don't write poetry, um, but we now have good evidence to believe that they are capable of presenting to themselves mentally something that is absent from their immediate environment. And that's an imaginative act. And so in the book, I, I make the argument that dreams are inherently imaginative. There is something irreducibly fantastical about dreams. And that means that you need imagination of some sort, even if it's not exactly a human imagination, in order to dream. And the reason for this is because, as I mentioned earlier, to dream is to create a world out of nothing, right? Maybe out of past experience, definitely, but it's using past experience that is no longer here and now in order to create a new here and now. Um, and so I, I do want to point out that this interpretation of, of dreaming as imaginative is not universally accepted by dream experts and by dream researchers. There is a disagreement among um, experts in dream science about how to define dreams. For example, some people say dreams are 
not really imaginative acts. They are more like beliefs. So when I dream about a white elephant, it's essentially that I believe that there's a white elephant when there isn't really one. So it's a false belief. Other people say, no, 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 that, that doesn't sound right to me because dreams are much more vivid. They're much more real and presentational than a mere belief. So they are closer to hallucinations. So there are people who defend the hallucination theory of dreaming, according to which a dream is essentially a subspecies of, of hallucination. It's a particular kind of hallucination. Other people say, no, that doesn't seem right because there are significant differences between hallucinations and dreams. For example, typically hallucinations tend to be uh, unisensorial. They tend to involve only one sensory modality, like just a vision or just the hearing of voices or something like that. Whereas dreams actually combine a lot of sensory modalities. They are, they are a fuller world. Um, they're much more complete than a hallucination from a sensorial perspective. And the people who make that argument typically then lean on this alternative, which is that dreams are not really beliefs. Dreams are not really hallucinations. They are closer to imaginings. When I imagine something, let's say that somebody tells me, imagine the Eiffel Tower, then through a combination of mental focus, mental memory, um, and uh, uh, mental creation, I bring to my mind an image of the Eiffel Tower. And perhaps along with it, of other things that surround it, you know, maybe the sound of, of French or the smell of the flowers that I know surround the Eiffel Tower. So I bring to mind an entire vision of the scene that is the Eiffel Tower. In that regard, dreams might be a kind of imaginative exercise because, again, it's a created world that, that comes from nowhere but our minds. And so this argument is compelling to me. I, I do believe that dreams are inescapably and inexorably imaginative. There is an element of fantasy at the heart of every dream. Uh, and that means that they are instances of imagination. So one of the chapters in the book, which is called The Zoological Imagination, makes the argument that for a long time, we have operated with what I call an anthropological conception of imagination, which basically tells us that imagination applies only to Homo sapiens and is therefore the, the purview of anthropology. Whereas what we need to do is we need to broaden our understanding of the imagination and recognize that imagination is an animal capacity. It is not an exclusively human one. And so I, I argue that we need to begin thinking about developing a zoological conception of imagination, which is the kind of imagination that we share with, with all other forms of animal life. You know, that in itself is a, uh, you know, remarkable way of, of considering animals. But then you take it a step further and talk about the ethical implications of that. And, and that seems to me to, to, to open up a, a, a whole 
different way of of conceiving our, our relationship with the animal world. If if we start if we considering that we and and and, and the, the the ethics of how we interact with animals uh, even uh, in 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 the present day. Yeah, if I had to choose a reason why I wrote this book, the motivating organizing principle, it definitely would be the chapter on ethics because although I am truly um, drawn and um, uh, magnetized by questions of animal consciousness and subjectivity and cognition and emotion, I think all those questions can never be divorced from the fundamental moral question of what this all means in terms of the moral status of animals. So if all these things are true about animals, that they can do A, they can do B, they can do C, then presumably at some point we have to switch gears and consider what that might mean about the sorts of moral protections that they should be entitled to. And therefore, we should be open about the possibility that the very things that we're discovering about the consciousness of other animals might have repercussions on, on questions of morality and might, in the end, incriminate human practices um, in connection to, to non-human animals. And so chapter four, which is the final chapter of the book, is the deep dive into the ethical dimension of this whole discussion. Now, here I need to be specific because there have been in the history of Western um, philosophy and literature and theory, some people who talk about the relationship between dreams and morality. But most of those discussions focus on the morality or immorality of dream content. Let me say what I mean by that. So, for example, St. Augustine, um, Christian father, was really concerned in his book, The Confessions, about the moral implications of having dreams of sin. So he says, if I have a, a dream in which I'm doing something sinful, obviously that says something about me. So in the eyes of God, does that mean that I've, sin I, that I've sinned simply because I've dreamt or I've dreamed of, of sinning? Um, and you find that same concern in a few other people like uh, Thoreau, who also raises the question of whether our dreams might reveal something about our fundamental character. So if you're the kind of person that constantly has dreams, I don't know, let's say about dismembering human bodies, does that tell us something about your moral fiber? Um, and so there is this history of thinking about the relationship between dreams and morality, but at the level of content. Uh, am I morally responsible for the things that I dream about even though they are obviously not under volitional control? That's the question. Now, that is not the approach that I take in this book. Um, I, I don't think that there are significant moral questions that come out of dream content. But uh, nonetheless, I do believe that there is a foundational, um, really quite um, fundamental connection between dreaming and morality, but it happens simply at the level of the fact that dreaming happens. 
So I don't care what animals dream about or what humans dream about. I care about the act of dreaming itself. And I think this is perhaps the the more nuanced argument that I make in the book that requires moving through very different um, philosophical discussions about the nature of dreaming, about the nature of morality, about the relationship between those two and consciousness. But the thread of the argument goes something like this, if I just had to schematize it into three steps. The first step is to recognize that dreaming is a kind of conscious experience. And it is what I call an expression of phenomenal consciousness. Because when we dream, we are presented with all kinds of subjective phenomena and we experience phenomenal states. We feel things while we dream. So the the focus here is on feeling and sensing. So that's the first part of the argument. The second part of the argument, which I spend a lot of time articulating in the book, is the claim that that kind of phenomenal consciousness, the having of feelings and the having of a subjective point of view in the world, that is the core of moral status. So when we ask the fundamental moral question of which entities in the world are entitled to things like respect, dignity, moral consideration, for me, the answer is phenomenal consciousness. So for example, right now I am in my office and if I look around, there's all kinds of inanimate objects, right? There's a lamp, there's a table, there's a chair, there's a backpack. Most of us would agree that those things are just inanimate objects that are not entitled to any kind of moral protection, right? They don't matter morally. I can break the chair if I want to. And even if that's not economically a smart move, nobody would argue that it is an immoral act, that I've somehow violated a basic tenet of of moral theory. But when we get to sentient beings, things are a little bit different, right? When we get to animals, when we get to human animals as well, morality enters the scene. But for a long time, the question has been, what makes the difference? Why is it that the chair doesn't matter, but perhaps my brother or my sister do matter? And again, for me, the the best way to answer this question is to appeal to the concept of phenomenal consciousness, which is a very basic kind of conscious awareness that includes, I believe, most, if not all of the animal kingdom. And that is in direct contrast to an alternative account of moral status, which I reject in the book, which links moral status to cognitive sophistication. So there are people who believe that only those beings that have some kind of high-end rationality matter from a moral perspective. And that strikes me as inaccurate. Um, And in fact, it strikes me as dangerous because it means that you end up denying moral protection and moral consideration to a large number of animals and sentient beings just because they don't have the thing that we value about ourselves the most, which is our rational, cognitive, intellectual capacities. Um, And so I make the argument that we should be focusing on what I call feeling or phenomenality as opposed to cognition in approaching questions of moral status. So that's the second, I said there are three three stages of the argument. That's the second one. So again, the first one is the notion that dreams are phenomenal states. 
The second one is that phenomenal states are the foundation or the, the cornerstone of moral status. And then the final one is relatively simple. And that is that if an animal has moral status, then they are entitled to the moral to, to moral consideration. And so by bringing those three arguments together, I, I produce an account according to which dreaming is a sufficient condition for drawing the conclusion that other animals deserve what I call moral rights. So this is the, the, the note on which the book ends. But as I said, it's also the note from which the book begins because that ethical dimension is what, what prompted me to write the book in the first place. And it is characteristic of my work on animal consciousness across the board. I believe that there is a very close connection between questions of animal mentality, questions of animal consciousness, and questions of animal ethics. Well, uh, we appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us. But before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Well, right now I am healing from the tortuous process that was writing a book, especially <laughs> a, a first book. So I think I'm going to take some time um, to promote the book, to let the book um, move through through the public space on its own. And in the meantime, I have been working on a couple of other projects. I just had an article come out in the journal Animal Law, which is about the culture of whales and dolphins, and again, the legal and moral protections that those animals should be entitled to, not by virtue of dreaming, but by virtue of having culture in the technical sense of the term, of having rituals and traditions that they pass horizontal, um, horizontally through different forms of social learning. So that's, that's a project about the relationship between animal cognition, animal culture, and legal rights. Um, I am now beginning to think about what my next book project might be. And I think it will also be about the minds of animals and about animal consciousness, although I'm, I'm not sure yet about what the parameters exactly will be. But I think it will involve a closer look at animal embodiment uh, and uh, contemporary discussions of of what is called embodied cognition, the way in which sometimes it is through the body that we think. Um, and so I think I want to take discussions of embodied cognition to the to the realm of animal consciousness. So we'll see. I, I think I'm still at least two years out from having anything ready for that project. It's it's a slow process. Well, if it's anything like your, your first book, I, I do look forward to seeing it when it comes out. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. David, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you. You too.